You've probably heard the story about the little boy who knelt beside his bed one night to pray, and he prayed, God bless Mommy, and God bless Daddy. And then in a real loud voice, he shouted, And God, I want a new bicycle. His mom said, Son, God isn't deaf. The little boy replied, I know, but Grandma's in the other room, and she's hard of hearing. That little boy had a backup plan in case God didn't answer his prayer. If we were truthful, we would all probably agree that sometimes our prayers are maybe not that bad, but are something like it. We try to pull God in line with our plans and our desires instead of aligning our prayers with his purposes. That should be the goal of our prayers, to pray in accordance with God's will. No one did that better than Jesus did. Jesus did it perfectly. That's why I think it's important to study the prayers of Jesus. Last week we began looking at one of the most unique passages in all the Bible, John chapter 17. So if you want to be turning there, we're going to be continuing on in that passage. It is unique because it is the longest prayer ever recorded of our Lord. If you were here last week, you'll remember that the prayer can be broken down into three parts. Section 1, verses 1 through 5, is Jesus praying for himself. Section 2, verses 6 and following, are Jesus praying for his disciples. And then verse 20 and beyond, the end of the chapter, is Jesus praying for all believers. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go back and review everything we looked at last week. But I do want to say, for the sake of anybody who was not here and who heard me just say the first part was Jesus praying for himself, that is not Jesus praying for himself in the way that we would think of us praying for ourselves. Jesus said in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. As he prayed for himself, he was really praying that God be glorified through himself. I'm not going to review all the other points, but we went on to look at some other truths about Jesus that Jesus revealed about himself and his plan, God's plan of the eternal salvation, the redemption story. There was truth there about Jesus and his role in that. Today we're going to be looking at the second section in verses 6 through 19, where Jesus now prays for the disciples, the ones he's poured his life into these last few years. Jesus, being the high priest, fulfills that role perfectly in these verses as we see him interceding on behalf of, of his disciples. So we're going to read verses 6 through 19 and then look, come back and look at them in, in a little more detail. Beginning in John chapter 17, verse 6, Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, 
so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, also I have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified. Bible scholars refer to this section as the section that Jesus prays for his disciples. But as I read studied this and tried to put it into outline form, I didn't see an actual request or a prayer for the disciples until you get down in verse 11. This is where he prays for the Father to keep them in your name. So for outline purposes, I broke it down into two sections, with the second section being the prayer request of Jesus for the disciples. So I had to go back and kept rereading the first sections of those verses, trying to determine how to outline them. What was that? What was Jesus praying for in this first section? It seems to me that as you study this, that Jesus prays here, he is reminding the Father and reminding the disciples of something. Remember, the disciples are right there in the room with him. They're listening to him. They're hearing everything he's saying. And he's reminding them, and he's also reminding the Father, praying back to the Father. That's what prayer should be, is praying back to the Father and reminding the Father of his own words. What he's doing here is he's reminding the Father why God has answered and will answer the coming request that he's going to make. So in this section of Jesus' prayer, verses 6 through 10, he shares with us two reasons why God will answer and has answered the prayers that he's going to make. And the two reasons I see in these verses are that, number one, that they were a gift from the Father, and number two, that they believed. Both of these are summed up in verse 6. Look at 6 again. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. This is a summary of both of those. They were a gift from the Father, and they believed in your word. They, they obeyed your word, which is a synonym of they believed your word. Number one, they were a gift from the Father. He begins by describing them as those he had manifested his name to. The word manifest in Greek means to make known or to reveal. And Jesus did this perfectly. And the tense of the verb is past tense in the Greek, which means that he's already accomplished this. What does it mean then that Jesus said he manifested God's name to them? We used to talk to Jehovah Witnesses a lot, and they would key in on verses like this and say, well, you got to know the real name of God, Jehovah. And they would use verses like this twisted around to talk about the name of God. But that's not what the name of God implies here. What is it that Jesus said when he manifested his name? It means that he showed who God was, the attributes of God, God's purposes, his character, what he's about. Jesus manifested God's name to the disciples, and he did it so perfectly that he could make the claim that he who has seen me has what? Seen the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. In Colossians, he wrote, Paul wrote, For in him, talking about Jesus, the fullness of the deity dwells, and all the fullness of de- deity dwells in bodily form. 
In Hebrews 1.3, the writer said, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. So as I thought about this, I thought, what are some of the attributes of God that Jesus exemplified in his, in his life, in his ministry? And then what scriptures or what event shows that? So I'll open it up for ideas. What are some of the attitudes or attributes of God that Jesus exemplified in his life? Compassion. How did he do that? Healing. That's a very good example. Yeah, you think about the Samaritan woman, how nobody else would, would have talked to her. Jesus did that. He showed compassion. What other attributes? Humility. Omniscience. How did he show it? Think of a scripture when you say the attribute. How did he show his omniscience? Right. The woman at the well when he said, you know, he knew things about her past and who she was married to. He showed things that his omniscience. What other attributes? Justice. What about cleansing the temple? He showed his justice. He showed somewhat the wrath of God against the not the correct religious leaders. He showed his judgment, his justice. What about power? Power over nature as he walked on water and calmed the sea. Raised Lazarus from the dead. All of those things show Jesus showing attributes of the Father because he said, I and the Father are one. That's how he showed us who God is. Before that, people didn't really, you know, they had all these different views of God based on different things, but Jesus is showing them who God really is. And we have that today in his word. That's how we know. Would we really ever know about God had Jesus never come? Jesus is what we know about God because he is that exact representation so as we think about those things, we think about that's how God manifested himself to the disciples. But did he not manifest himself to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other Jews? He did in the sense that he did all these other things in front of them, but they didn't recognize him as who he was either. So there's another part to that manifestation because it's making himself known was something that God did, right? It wasn't just because of that everybody knew who he was. They thought a lot of different things about who he was. So he manifested himself. He made himself known. That's the part of talking about giving, God giving them to Jesus, whom you gave me out of the world, verse 6. He gave the disciples to them out of the world. The fact that they were given to Jesus implies they were already God's to begin with, to be able to give to Jesus. Before their conversion, they already belonged to God. But God gave them to Jesus and he called them out of the world. This verse is true about all of us, but it's very specific to the disciples, which we're talking about, who he's praying for. God gave them to Jesus, not just to be saved, but for the work of apostleship, to be one of those who were going to take the gospel into the world. He called them out of the world, our verse says. The world being the sin-dominated evil system ruled by who? Satan. Not the kings or leaders of the world, but ultimately by Satan. So we see that God did a work. He manifested his name. He made himself known to the disciples. He called them out of the world. He opened their eyes. He removed the veil. They were a gift from the Father, and yet they had a responsibility. Which brings us to the second reason that Jesus knows that God will answer his prayers on behalf of the disciple, and that is because they believe. Look at the other part of verse 6. 
You gave them to me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. They kept your word shows the need for obedience. It shows what genuine faith really is. For the one who has real faith will keep his word. First John tells us, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. James says, show me your faith and what? I will show you my works. The mark of a genuine faith is obedience, not out of duty or obligation, but out of love for the one who granted us so much mercy. Now, both of these points are then repeated in different ways in the next few verses. Look at verse 7 and 8. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. And they believed. In contrast to the majority of the people that heard Christ's words, these are the ones that believed. Who did most of the people of the day think Jesus was? Some of them thought he was a prophet. Some thought he was John the Baptist. Come back. Actually, some thought he was maybe from Satan. They said, who is this man? Is he from Beelzebub, which was the ruler of the demons? By whose power does he do these things? So... The disciples were granted the faith to believe. They didn't fully get it until after the resurrection, but we know because Jesus, he asked them one time, who, does, who do you say that I am? And what was the response? You are the son of God. The, you know, you are, I can't remember the exact words, but it just left me. But he basically, they got it. They said, you know, you are the son of God, the living Christ. So they got it. The others didn't. The people today have the same question to ask. Who is Jesus? What are some of the answers we get today? A good man. That's a real common one. A prophet. A fairy tale. Some don't believe at all. Terry and I, a couple of years ago, I may have told you this story, but a couple of years ago we met a couple through her work. She had sold them a house, and we got to be friends with them, and we're trying to share with them and they were going to, a, I think they started out at a Unity Church, and then they ended up at a Baja Church. They actually came to one of our missions conference and really enjoyed it. They thought it was all great. But when you boil it back down to, they didn't believe in Jesus as who Jesus said he was. They didn't believe he was the Son of God, that he rose from the dead, that he, he purchased it on the cross, he, he redeemed us by his blood. They didn't believe all that. They just believed he was a a good person, and he was just like a lot of the other good prophets, you know, the teachers and those type of religions, the Unity Church, the Baha Faith. They just kind of put everybody in the same category, many ways, to heaven. So that Jesus here is saying, I and the Father are one, and you have to believe in the true Jesus, who he really is. Why do people want to not believe in Jesus of the Bible, they want to believe in it. someone. They're, you know, like he's put him in the same category as others. What do you think ultimately is the root of that? Self. They don't want to be. They don't want to obey. They want to pick and choose. They they don't want to be accountable to the living God. That's what we all do. That's what idolatry is. If we're left to ourselves, we will all make it out to be whatever we want it to be. So when Jesus said they kept your word, he means they had a genuine faith. They were obedient, not in a legalistic way, but it shows genuine faith. Obedience is often used as a synonym for faith in the Bible. 
The book of James has a lot to say about that. You cannot separate obedience from faith. If you have one, you will have the other. Not perfect obedience, but a genuine striving to please the Lord. So in verses 7 and 8, we see Jesus reinforcing one of the reasons he knows God will answer his prayers because these disciples, first of all, they believed in Jesus as being God's Son. The other is they are a gift from the Father, verses 9 and 10. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them." Jesus is sure God will answer his prayers for the disciples because they are a gift from the Father. He makes it clear that he is not praying for all the people of the world. He is praying for a select group of people. We know that Jesus loved everyone. It says that he does. The scripture says he he did. We are commanded in ourselves to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. Jesus on the cross prayed for God to forgive those who were putting him to death. But here in this high priestly prayer, Jesus is interceding to the Father on behalf of those who are given to him, for those he is about to die for and make atonement for their sins. He said in verse 10, those he had been glorified in. And I thought about how was Jesus glorified in the disciples? They showed glory in one way in the sense that they were all rebellious, disobedient followers of the world of darkness, and God brought them out of that. Think about who the disciples were. Peter was rash, quick to speak, cutting off the soldier's ear. Wouldn't be long from these words here that he would deny Christ. You had the sons of thunder, James and John. You had a tax collector who was one of the most hated men in society. You had Thomas who would later doubt Christ. We call him Doubting Thomas sometimes. Later he would call Saul the persecutor of the church to be one of the apostles. Most of them ended up dying a martyr's death, though, because of what happened in their lives. They were transformed by the Holy Spirit into men and women who would turn the world upside down. That brings glory to God. So as Jesus is about to pray for the disciple, he reveals why he knows the Father will answer his prayer. Number one, because they believed in him. Number two, because they were obedient or they had believing faith and now starting in verse 11 he makes two specific requests for the disciples he says in verse 11 i am no longer in the world and yet they themselves are in the world and i come to you holy father keep them in your name the name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus begins his request for the disciples by addressing God as Holy Father. I don't think that's coincidental. I think that was significant. Jesus sets the stage for the disciples' goal of being different from the world by reminding them of God's holiness, and then he prays for them. And what's his prayer? It's a prayer of protection. Keep them in your name. Verse 12, he reminds them as he prays that he's been here. And while he's been here, he's been directly protecting them. He's personally kept them and guarded them. The words in Greek for guarded and keep are two different words. One referring to restraint with the idea of protecting by watching over. And the other has the picture of protecting by guarding from outside threats, such as guarding one's house. 
It shows complete protection from all threats. It is a prayer to keep them and not let them fall away. That is a great reminder of how God protects his children. And I wrote my notes all the way home. I have a book on Romans 8 that's entitled All the Way Home. And those verses, when you go through Romans 8, which talks about for those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. And it goes on to say things like, what then shall separate us from the love of God? He ends the chapter by saying, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor angels, nor death, nor height, nor any other thing can separate us from the love of God. That's the protection Jesus is praying here for the disciples. Protect them all the way home. Do not let the world take them. He's also praying that they be protected, their unity be protected as believers. Look at verse 11. Keep them in your name, the name you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. It's amazing the bond that we have as believers, isn't it? Many times it's stronger than even family. It's not limited to local congregation, but extends into the community and around the country, even around the world. Those of you who have gone on mission trips have experienced that. Uh, We have some friends who have visited with her a couple times, Joe and Claudette. I don't even know if we've introduced you through the graph. Raise your hand there, Joe. They're visiting with us. They they have moved in our neighbors now at where we've moved. And there was an instant bond, I felt. I don't know if they felt it, but I felt there was an instant bond because they are believers and we are believers. And there was an instant bond. It's like I've known them for years because of our bond in the Lord. And I know many of you have been on missions trips and experienced that. When we went to France last year, Dennis and I and Steve Trom, did you not feel a bond with the believers there, Dennis? It was it was something that you can't really explain. I mean, it's the culture there is, and they even Paul and Karen Davis warned us. They said, as you walk down the road, people won't speak to you in France. He said, and Dennis kind of made it a challenge. He kind of waved and talked to everybody there. Some of them kind of seemed startled, and some of them said hi. A lot of them did respond, but it wasn't natural for them. But once we walked into the church building, it was hugs and kisses. And, of course, they they kiss everybody on the cheek anyway. If they know them, it's a family. But we were family. There was a bond there. We couldn't talk to them. Hardly any of them spoke English, couldn't communicate with them. But there was a bond there that was something that the world doesn't always experience um, because it was a bond that we have in the Lord. And I thought about this as Jesus prayed for their unity as believers. That was something they were going to need to have to be able to be a strong witness in their their world. So by praying to keep them in his name, Jesus is also praying to protect their unity one for another. Jesus has now been with the disciples these past few years, and he has personally kept them and guarded them from being safe from the Pharisees and the scribes' teachings and the religious leaders, from those who would want to twist the message He has protected them completely and lost not one of them except Judas, which Jesus shares was not really lost because he was never one of his to begin with. If you look at chapter 18 of John, you'll see in verses 4 through 9 that statement is verified. It says, So Jesus, knowing all these things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he, and Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with him. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to his sword. Now this is the account of Judas um, 
betraying him in the garden. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me. I lost not one. So we can be sure that Judas was not a true believer because he says, I lost not one. Judas was not one. So if someone betrays and falls and and dies in a state of unbelief, you can be sure that he was not truly one of God's because Jesus said, I have not lost one. I will not lose, not one. And as a result of these truths, Jesus was sharing with them, he said, you're going to have joy. Verse 13 tells us, back in John chapter 17, verse 13, he says, And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. These words that he's praying are going to give the disciples, along with all believers, joy because of the comfort that these words bring to us. And not any joy, but he says, my joy. I think it's interesting as you think about this prayer for protection, what Jesus didn't pray. He did not pray for their protection from disease or illness. He didn't pray for their protection from persecution. He wasn't praying for their safety. Jesus was more concerned about what? Their spiritual well-being than he was their physical well-being. We don't know what happened to all the disciples, but we know they weren't protected. It's said that Peter was crucified upside down. James was put to death by Herod Agrippa. James, the son of Alphaeus, was thrown from the temple by the scribes and Pharisees and then stoned and his head beaten with clubs. Thomas is said to have been killed by a sword. One account has Matthew staked to the ground by spears and then beheaded. There's a legend that tells about Philip being hung upside down by large hooks through his ankles and left there to die. I don't know if all these accounts are true. Some of them are legends. Some of them are passed down through writings of historians. But we know that they weren't protected from persecution. And most of them, I think eight of them, we know for sure, died a martyr's death. Jesus is not praying for that kind of protection. Jesus is always more concerned about our spiritual protection than our physical protection. And that made me think from an application standpoint about my own prayers. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand me. I don't think that we should not pray for healing or physical ailments. I think we're commanded in other places in Scripture to do that. He tells us to call for the elders and pray for you if anybody's sick. So I'm not saying that, but I think if you examine your prayers and it's 99% physical and 1% spiritual, that we're probably off. I think we need to examine the prayers of Jesus and see how he prayed, and we need to, to remember what's more important, to pray for someone's physical health or someone's spiritual health. So we need to be reminded by this that we should be praying for spiritual protection. That's what Jesus shares with us in these verses. And Jesus, in verse 14 through 16, describes why they needed protection. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. The reason Jesus prays for their protection is because he's left them in a hostile world, hasn't he? We are always reminded in Scripture that this is not our home, that we are citizens of another land, that we are ambassadors. And the world is not just apathetic. It says that this is 
a hostile world. It says to keep him from the evil ones. This is Satan's world. And we are called to be in the world, but not of the world. So I think it would be a good place to stop for a minute and just to reflect on this thought of being in the world and not of the world. And I have to be brutally honest. When I was first a Christian, I liked the world. I mean, I was young. I was energetic. I was ambitious. I wanted to get into real estate. I wanted to make a lot of money. I wanted to have a house on the water with a boat. And these were the things in the back of my head that I wanted to achieve. And when I started going to church and really learning the Bible and people were talking about God coming back soon and things like that, I'm like, I'm not quite ready yet. you know. And I, I believed in the Lord. I think I was saved at that point, but I was a very immature and weak Christian. And I really didn't understand the eternal nature and, and the things of God and the spiritual kingdom. And I was still battling with the flesh and my desires. I didn't really want to die. But it's said here that the kingdom of this world is Satan's. And you think about how my, I was influenced by the world in those early years. And I thought about how has the culture influenced the church in which we live today? You know, think about, think back 75 years and think about the church and the people of this country, and think about where the culture has gone. How has the culture changed over the last 50, 60 years? How has it affected people which have then affected the church? Any ideas? How about the attitude of divorce? Years ago, what was the attitude of divorce? You just didn't do it. And I'm not saying everybody that's divorced, you know, it's all... I mean, there's scriptural reasons for divorce, There's and people sin, and things happen. I understand that. I'm not trying to hit on people who have been divorced, but the attitude of the church has changed because the attitude of the culture has changed. What about the way people dress? The modesty in the church, has that not changed somewhat with the culture? How about women's liberation movement? And now you have women's pastors and women's teaching. Is that contrary to Scripture? It's changed with the culture. Now we're seeing it blatantly in the attitude of homosexuality and issues like that. The attitude of the culture is migrating into the church. Not all churches, but to somewhat you can see how the influence of the world over time has influenced the church. So when Jesus was praying for protection, he was praying for protection from the influence of this evil world. He wasn't praying for the protection of your safety from it, but from your faith from it. He was praying for protection. I thought of the words that Pilate spoke to Jesus, and Jesus responded, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate didn't have anything to worry about from Jesus. He was not here to take Pilate's kingdom from him. His was a spiritual kingdom, not of this world. It would be made up of people, not of this world. So how are we to not be of this world? Do we all go off in a commune to live? No, Jesus said, and even in these verses, that he was sending them into the world, and he has sent us into the world. The best way to answer Scripture is to read more scriptures. I thought of First John two fifteen and 17 where the words say, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life 
are not of the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Those verses tell me that our love, our devotion, our aim, our purpose in life is not to be the stuff of this world, but spiritual things, heavenly things. Sometimes I think we take this warning too lightly. I know that it's true because I see the results. I see Christians who love God, but they get entangled into the world, and I see them fall. I see them getting involved with pornography and things like that because of their devotion to the world. They're one step in, one step out, and and they fall. I see the way the world has an effect on the church. I see the way the world has an effect on me. It's a serious warning. That's why Jesus prays for the disciples. That's why John gives us this warning too. There's a simple statement in the Bible that I thought of that ought to give us all great concern. In 2 Timothy 4.10, there's a statement that says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. And that was the Apostle Paul talking. And if you study that, you'll find that there's not a lot about Demas in the Bible, but we know he was with Paul on several occasions because his name was mentioned as he sent greetings to Philemon and I think maybe the church at Colossae. But in this statement, Paul says that Demas deserted me because he loved the world. And I think it does, it's something that doesn't happen quickly, but I think it's something that can grow as you neglect the things of God and neglect your time in the Word and your time with the Savior and you're preoccupied with work and activities and entertainment and those things can have an effect on you and you can find yourself year after years of neglecting to be more in touch with the world than with the Father. So I think it's an important and it's an important thing, it's an important thought and that's why Jesus thought it was so fitting to pray for the disciples for their protection from the world. That's the first request Jesus makes on behalf of the disciples is spiritual protection. The second request to go along with this one of spiritual protection, he says to sanctify them. Verse 17, Jesus says to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. What's the word sanctify mean? Set apart. The word sanctify means to set apart. It can be mean to be set apart from sin. It can mean to be set apart for a consecrated or holy service or purpose. Jesus probably had both of these thoughts in his mind when he said these words because remember who he was praying for. He was praying for the apostles. And he was praying for them to be set apart for this mission of taking the gospel into the world. Sanctify them in the truth clearly means the word of God. Jesus tells us thy word is truth. That's the standard. That's where we learn what sin is. That's one of the reasons I have such a big problem understanding how churches today in our culture are preaching and allowing things that are clearly against scripture. Because where's their standard? We only have one. It's the word of God. Thy word is truth. Where do they get the authority? It's our only real source of truth. We cannot find our definition of righteousness and holiness outside of it. Jesus, throughout his ministry, always held up the word. He held up the Old Testament words. He referenced and validated the Old Testament. He constantly referred to it, his own words, as the words of God. It's the only standard that we have. And Jesus, here in his prayers, praying that these disciples would be set apart from 
their sin in accordance with the word of truth. So how do we go about setting apart ourselves from sin and consecrating our lives to God's kingdom? Again, another scripture came to mind, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but how? But by transforming of your mind, the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And this is important for the disciples, because he's going to send them into the world to preach the gospel to the entire world, and it was necessary for them to be holy and to be sanctified in order to present good testimony. What happens when you witness to someone and your life doesn't match up with your words? It kind of destroys your witness, doesn't it? So he was praying for the disciples to be sanctified and to be set apart. Verse 19 is an important truth to not forget because it says, For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. They would have never had the ability to do this if Christ had not first sanctified himself. Jesus is saying here that I fully consecrated myself to the work of redemption. That was his purpose. It was his obedience to the word of God for his life. It was his righteousness and obedience that atoned for them and allowed them the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to go into the world and preach the gospel. So in conclusion, Jesus' words here, and this unique prayer of our Lord show us the perfect example of praying according to God's will. That's what prayer should be. Jesus did this perfectly. He prayed that God would continue to work out his plan of redemption, started in eternity past, that he would protect and sanctify the ones that belonged to him, who were given to Jesus, the ones that believed in him. These disciples, along with Apostle Paul, would turn the world upside down through the spreading of the gospel. So it should be our prayer God continues to work out his redemptive plan that we should thank him for giving us the gift of salvation, for granting us faith to believe, that he would continue to protect us and sanctify us and set us apart, helping us to be vessels of his in this dark world, that we would not be attached to the world, that we would be set apart from it, to be good witnesses, to be good soldiers in God's army. And as I think I closed last week the same way I'm going to close this week, and think about this. As I said last time, have you ever felt comfort knowing that someone was praying for you? Well, here we see Christ praying for the disciples, and next week we're going to see Christ praying for us as all believers. It's comforting to know that our brothers and sisters are praying for us, but how comforting should it be that we know that our Lord and Savior is praying for us? Let's close. Father, thank you for this time together. Father, thank you for your word, the power that's in your word. Father, the power to convict, the power to encourage, the power to save. Father, we don't take these words lightly. May you help us to really examine our own lives in light of your word and Jesus' prayer for the disciples and for us. Father, may we grow into the men and women of character and of purpose in our life. May we not be drawn to the things of this world, but be drawn to spiritual things. May we be emboldened and empowered by your Holy Spirit to share with the world the good news that Jesus brings. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.